Welcome back to the 13th episode of Chess Journeys, Tales of Adult Improvement. On Chess Journeys, we seek to highlight not only the highs of rating gains and growth, but also delve into the pits of despair where many of us are struggling day in, day out. Uh, special alert, special announcement, we now have a Patreon page at Patreon Chess Journeys. Please do not feel obligated to donate, but if you want to, go ahead. And I'd like to thank our first Queen Level member, Terry King. Thanks a lot. Okay, on with the show. Today, we are not delving in as much, I don't think, to the disparities. Instead, we have a champion in our midst. We have someone fresh off of the highs of the rating gain of the great accomplishments. Hopefully, it'll be only up here, hill from here. Max will be a GM soon. Welcome to the show, Max. Have you gotten to play any chess yet today? Hey, Kevin. Yeah, I did get to play some chess. Got to play a couple of blitz games, a couple of rapid games. You know, I'm, I'm coming off a tournament, but uh, I like to keep the practice consistent. So, yeah. Okay, nice. So he's, he's, not, he's not resting on his laurels here. Um, what do you get more value out of, blitz games or rapid games? So that's an interesting question. You know, if you had asked me this uh, a month or two ago, I might have had a different answer for you. But my opinion on blitz and rapid has really shifted uh, recently. You know, actually going into this tournament, I hadn't played blitz for two months mm. at all because wow. um, I'm someone of a blitz fiend and blitz has <laughs> conquered a lot of my study time over the past year. Huh. So I finally decided, you know, I'm going to lay off a little bit. I'm going to really focus on uh, studying. Um, but I think, yeah, I think rapid, you know, tends to be a little bit more effective, even if it's 10 minute, uh, you just get a little bit more time to think on your decisions, you know, coming back to blitz, after not playing for so long, you know, I thought that I would be worse at it because I'm just not used to that speed. Uh, I actually haven't lost any rating. I've been able to maintain my rating, but I'm just so much more conscious of how fast it is and how little time you actually have to spend on like critical moments. Mm. And it's just really bad. Like uh, I really don't think that um, I'm going to be playing more than like five games a day. I think that's going to be my quota going forward. Um. But, you know, it can still be fun and there is something still useful to it. But I think mm -hmm. definitely rapid uh, is the way to go in terms of like a casual uh, practice time control. Interesting. So are you saying that a couple of months ago, you would have said Blitz was your, you, you would have thought that was more valuable for improvement? Uh, well, I mean, I think that still rapid definitely um, overall is a little bit better. But I think like Blitz, uh, I mean, I was playing a lot of Blitz and I could have swore by it because you know, even still, I try to analyze those blitz games, you know, at least spend a little bit of time to go over. But like, realistically speaking, how can you like be critical of a decision you had like three seconds to think on? You know, it's like it's just not the same as uh, mm -hmm. as in a rapid game or well, I mean, classical, obviously. But yeah, blitz like you got to try to keep it to a minimum because uh, it, it gets a little bit crazy. OK, that's certainly where I'm at. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's get into the meat of this. So you went five Oh in an event this weekend. We want to know everything. We want to know what that felt like to go five and Oh, uh, what you did to prep yourself to do that. So let's just start with a quick breakdown. How the tournament go? It was it was it an easy five Oh, did you just womp everybody? What happened? Give us a quick breakdown. 
Right. So, well, first of all, uh, I will get to your question, but I just want to back up a little bit and, and kind of describe like where I was at going into this tournament, because uh, obviously it wasn't my first tournament after the pandemic. Hmm, uh, this okay. was, I believe, my eighth, actually. Your eighth? So, yeah. Okay. Actually, okay. So we got to stop for a second. How did you get eight tournaments in? That's amazing. Right. Yeah. So I will get to that. So I made my return to over the board uh, end of May. It was Memorial Day weekend, uh, an event called the Cherry Blossom Classic in Virginia. I drove uh, four hours down to Virginia to play in this um, amazing tournament. It was actually, I think, one of the best tournaments I've played in just by conditions, like all the sets were provided and they weren't just, you know, plastic. They were like legitimate wooden sets. Whoa. Very good. Uh, very cool tournament. And I did well. You know, I was 1900 flat uh, as of um, February of 2020. And I shot up to 1983. You know, I just had a good result in the under 2300 section. So I was thinking, all right, I'm, I'm close to making 2000. Yeah. Wow. Uh, then my next tournament was the World Open in July. Uh played in the under 2200 section and didn't do quite as well. I scored four out of nine, you know, a lot of games I felt like didn't really go my way, but it was a very long event. You know, it was nine rounds over five days. So, you know, things happen. Maybe you're, you're not always as sharp as you could be. Uh, that brought me to 1998. So I'm thinking, all right, you know, one more tournament and I'll be there. I'll be 2000. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm looking around, there's not many events going on. You know, I'm from Jersey and like the club I was playing at still nothing. Um, many other places are, are pretty quiet. So I decided to sign up for the Marshall chess club in New York. You know, it's about 30, 40 minute drive away for me. So I thought, you know, not, not too bad. Um, they are open to vaccinated members. So, you know, I, I sent them my card. I paid for sort of like a three month, uh, I guess, trial membership, you could call it. I thought, okay, like, you know, I'll, I'll play a bit. They have stuff like pretty much every weekend, um, and during the week too, they have stuff, but you know, it's harder uh, to play then. So the first event I played there was the, uh, an under 2,400 kind of like open tournament. Hmm. And I just had an awful event. I went from 1998 down to like 1964. Hmm. Uh, and I can maybe discuss some of like those games later, but yeah, that kind of brought me down. And then I, I've been, I played a couple of um, like 45, five time control tournaments, which is historically been one of my tougher time controls i'm just like not as good at that kind of middle range mm. and so i just been stagnant for you know tournament after tournament i would you know come up a few points come down a few points i played in the nj open as well and again had a decent result but didn't really gain rating so you know i was getting a little bit frustrated and you know, i was at this plateau like in the mid 1900 range and so going into this event you know i signed up for the under 2100 section which I could have been a little bit more ambitious, signed up for the open, but I said, okay, under 2,100, if I'm going to play in this section, my goal is to win. Uh, I'm not the rating favorite because there were a decent amount of 2000 players. Um, definitely there were more in the open, but you know, there are also people that were as ambitious as me looking to win it. And so, yeah, this was a technically a three-day event taking place in Princeton called the Eastern Chess Congress, but I played the two-day section as many people did, you know, not a lot of people want to play the Friday night round, you yeah. know, might as well just sign up for the, the shorter time control games on Saturday morning. So yeah, I show up. First game is a 60 plus 10 game. I'm paired against a, a kid about 17, 60 or so. And, you know, I get off to a good start, um, get a pretty good position out of the opening. He makes kind of a, a mistake. He kind of opens the position too early. 
And very quickly, I get like a, a great position. I'm thinking, all right, this is going to be smooth. You know, I'm cruising to victory. Uh, at one point, I'm down a piece, but I just have a very strong attack. I'm on the verge of mating it. I could, I could feel it. You know, there's something here. Uh, but I was getting low on time. And uh, I sort of missed the critical sequence. You know, I went back after the game and the, my suspicions were confirmed. There was a mate in seven, which mm. I didn't play because there was some little move order that I needed to see, kind of missed it. And so I played this other move. And if, I don't know if you've ever had this feeling, like as soon as you make a move, you realize what was wrong with it yeah. or you realize what oh, yeah. you missed. <laughs> right? Like, and uh -huh. so I make this move and he just, make such a simple defensive resource. And I'm like, okay, why did I not see that? Uh, and I'm like, okay, am I even still better? Like I'm down a piece. I kind of went all in on this attack. Mm -hmm. What's going on here? So I, I had to try to stay calm. You know, clock is taken down. Uh, he was getting really low on the clock, but so was I. And so long story short, uh, game got really complicated. I completely blew my advantage, went into some uh, complicated end game, like two rooks versus rook, bishop, and knight. Wow. And somehow, you know, I just kept fighting, tried to stay cool. And in the end, I just managed to swindle it. He ended up losing on time, actually. But mm -hmm. the final position was winning for me. Okay. Um, but he missed. He had a very good chance. He could have just traded into a drawn king and pawn endgame. Mm -hmm. But, you know, maybe like in the time pressure, he kind of miscalculated. He wasn't sure if it was a draw. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I got off. I, I was prepared that it was just going to be a draw. And it was just going to be a rough start for me, you know, having blown a winning position. But fortunately, I was able to win that game. And real quick, when you say kid, what age range are we talking about? Uh, I'm not sure exactly, but I, I would, if I had to guess, I would say about 13, 14. Okay. But see, my next opponent was seven years old. Oh, okay. Now we're in business. He was a seven-year-old kid. Uh, and I, I see my pairing, you know, it's 1,600 I'm playing. Mm. who had beaten like an 18 or 1900 in the first round, something. All right, this yep. is not, you know, yep. your, your typical 1600. I can't take this kid lightly. And yeah, I, I sit down. He's, you know, little kid. I didn't know how old he was at the time. I asked him after the game, actually, Yeah, uh, which, you know, stunned me. Um, but yeah, he was playing pretty well. You know, I, I got a pretty good position out of the opening, but this was one of the games where, you know, when I looked back, I was kind of disappointed in myself at some of the things I missed, like, a little bit miscalculations. I could have had a much better position, but I missed some opportunities. And eventually I sort of had to like force a bunch of trades to not be worse. And mm. so we're in this kind of end game with queen stall on the board, but I'm thinking, all right, like if he just plays a couple more precise moves, it's just going to be a draw. There's not going to be much I can do. Mm. But fortunately for me, you know, maybe a little bit of end game inexperience as is common with most kids. He kind of allowed me a little bit too much and I was able to create just enough play and kind of uh, cause him to miss something. And I ended up just finding this like freakish mating net and just won the game. Very mm -hmm. kind of unexpected, very sudden uh, as the game was looking to end up in a draw. Yeah. So Do you, did you get the feeling at all that he was actually trying to go for the win and that's what allowed the window? Or do you think he, he also recognized like, okay, my job here is to try to hold a draw. Cause I know for myself, that's something that I kind of struggle with is like flipping my mindset into like, no, you're not going to win anymore. Now, now you're just trying to hold this thing. Right. I think for his perspective, I don't think he was really trying to win. I mean, I think he was right. just trying to hold down the fort. Um, it was me that I actually, I think I'm in a way I'm glad that I 
sort of accepted that the game could be a draw and didn't over push at some moment mm-hmm. because I could have like tried to stay in some messy position and maybe like sacrifice the exchange or something, but then yeah. things could have gone wrong. I would have ended up losing. Instead, I accepted that, you know, this could end in a draw, but I realized I still had some practical chances and that allowed me to push. And he mm-hmm. just kind of didn't, you know, didn't know how to handle it in the best way. And that just yeah. allowed me to create enough chances uh, to win. So, you know, I, I miraculously end these two 60 plus 10 games on two out of two. Nice. Um, and then we go into the evening game. Evening game, I'm paired against a Air Force veteran. Oh, interesting. Yeah, pretty strong player. About Not a seven-year-old, I'm guessing. Not a seven-year-old anymore. Seven. I, I'm no longer no. playing kids. I'm now playing an experienced uh, mm. former uh, service member. He's about 2060 USCF. Mm. And this turned out to be, in a way, my smoothest victory. It was very... Mm tough game it was not easy at all um he played in a very kind of unconventional way in the opening like i just i knew i was better but i didn't know how to break through Mm. and uh at one point he kind of got low on the clock and that was when i really kind of was able to build on my advantage because he made a couple of key mistakes uh but still you know i I was in this end game which was technically winning but he did a really good job of you know creating some chances for himself really complicating the position and dragging the game out you know game started at five didn't end until like 9.30. We were literally the last ones <laughs> in the entire playing hall of over, I don't know, 200 people to finish. Everyone uh-huh. was, we could literally analyze our game out loud because everyone was gone <laughs> by that point. Let me so, stop you for a second then and ask you this question. Yeah. What did it feel like as the hall was continuing to clear out? Were you thinking like, just resign already? Yeah. I've oh got man, this. if you were to see me, I was like, by body language, you would think that I was losing. I was just slouched over. I was like, man, when is this guy going to resign? Like, it's over. <laughs> uh-huh. But, you know, he had to keep fighting. And, yeah, I respect him for that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's a serious game at the end of the day. For sure. When you say he was playing sort of unorthodox in the opening, was, was he playing like an odd line of a mainline opening? Or was he playing something where you're like, whoa, I am not ready for this, this setup at all? He just had a very strange approach to like a line, which, you know, I've seen, but he just, he pushed a lot of pawns and kind of set up in this strange, like defensive formation, developed his bishops before his knights. At one point he had like a knight on F8 and knight on G8 and he wasn't castling, but it was just very hard to find a way through. You know, it was was a strange game. I think it was like 80 moves or something like that. What I'm hearing is my last guess, uh, international master Andres Toth would have been very upset with the way he handled the opening. Yeah, I, I think so. You know, <laughs> it, it was definitely a strange approach. You know, I had more wow. space and I had everything, but, you know, it's, it's n- never as easy as. A, All right. As so a, you finish round three, you're three and oh, it's yeah. late. So here's my next question. Did you ensure that you got a good night's sleep or did you struggle with sleep i know it can be hard to sleep while at tournaments how'd that go for you yeah so actually i was fortunate enough that uh i have some relatives that live close in that sort of princeton area i was able to uh, crash their house i didn't get quite as much sleep as uh i wanted to but i I woke up a little bit early but i felt refreshed i felt ready to go um you know got a little breakfast in and so I head to the, the next round, morning round of Sunday, which would be round four. And um, I'm paired up against actually a, a familiar face as someone that I had played in my last over-the-board tournament before the pandemic. Mm. He's a 
a Colombian guy. He's been, been living in the U.S. for quite some time, I believe, but he's an ex- also an experienced expert player. And actually, the funny thing is that he showed up super late. The round was at 10. Perhaps he thought it was going to be at 11. Okay. I actually showed up five minutes late. I thought I'm walking in late. I get there. He's <laughs> not there yet. I set up my pieces and I actually did not have a clock. This is one oh. thing. I've been neglecting to get a clock for a very long time. Yeah. I used to have one back in the day. It was old, broken. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some tournaments provide, like the Marshall Chess Club provides clocks. Some, I guess, fancier tournaments provide. But, you know, most of these Continental Chess Association tournaments, unfortunately, do not provide pieces or clocks. Yeah. So, uh, I was in the predicament of do I go around begging people or do I finally just go to the, the shop and, and buy myself a clock? I decided it's time. So I splashed some money on a nice uh, North American oh my and I turn it on and, you know, like I could have, if I had a clock already, he would have ended up losing more time, but still by the time he showed up, he was working with like a 35 minute time disadvantage. Oh my. He was very late. Yeah. Oh, right, well, I got to ask um, this question as he rolls in. Does he look worried and frazzled or is he like a total cool customer and like slowly adjusts all his pieces and writes down his information before moving? Like, how do you handle that? He was a little bit frazzled. Like he was just kind of, he stumbled in. He was like trying to find where the table is. You know, he, he walks in the wrong side, realizes that he has to go around now, <laughs> but he was relatively calm. I mean, he okay. wrote stuff down. And uh, the thing about me is like when I'm in a classical game, I tend to really take my time, like, especially mm. once we get out of the opening and I'm really adjusting to like a, a complicated middle game, I'm taking in everything. And so at some point, like the time ended up equalizing actually, mm. like he, maybe I had a slight advantage, but eventually it became even. And it was a, another very interesting game, uh, pretty strange kind of opening play a little bit from both sides. And it became just kind of like a, the type of sort of game where you're not, you're no longer relying on opening knowledge. You're more just sort of just going off basic strategy. You're trying to, you know, keep the game under control. And at some point now I was playing white. Actually, this is another thing uh, that I got a little bit fortunate in the tournament. I got three whites, two blacks. So this right. is my second, second row, uh, game in a row playing white. And uh, at, at some point I was better. He ended up equalizing, but then I found this move, which basically sent the game into a very sharp territory mm. and he didn't really like if he wanted to, he could have kind of neutralized it, but you know, maybe he was also trying to win. He was also trying to keep the game going and it became a very complicated fight. Uh, I think he maybe missed some chances where he could have drawn or maybe even uh, taken advantage, but he made some critical uh, mistakes, uh, critical. Yeah basically i guess inaccuracies or, or mistakes at some moments and uh i ended up getting the best of him uh again it was a very tough game we both got pretty low on, on the time at some point and uh, the, the interesting thing was that at various points like his buddies were looking over he had a, a friend that was playing the open section who kept coming over and looking over his shoulder and so when our game finished uh, we all went into like kind of a side room and we started analyzing and his two buddies also Colombian. Uh, <laughs> one of them like did not speak a lick of English. I think he was actually <laughs> from Colombia. He was uh, playing in this tournament. I didn't know at the time, but he was actually a FIDE master. Nice. And so he was giving his buddy suggestions. He was like, he was like, yo, why didn't you do this? Like, 
you know, centraliza, like you, you got to bring your rooks to the center. Like, man, what are you doing? Yeah. And like, I was kind of fighting, you know, his, uh, his buddy, I was like, well, you know, if, if he had done this, I would have done this. He's like, no, that's not good. Like, and so, yeah, it was a pretty entertaining, uh, post-mortem, you know, like how, nice. I, I was forced to kind of recall my high school Spanish, which I haven't practiced in years. Hmm. Um, but yeah, it was, it was definitely a tough game. Was, yeah, was that, um, your only post-mortem you got? Um, I believe, uh, well, I mean the, the evening round game, we went over the game a little bit, you know, cause we were last ones to finish. Uh, but this game was definitely the most in-depth post-mortem. We were going over stuff for quite a while. Uh, nice. so long that I actually barely got time to eat lunch in between rounds. <laughs> you know, I was like, all yeah. right, I got to drive to this Chipotle real quick. I get there. There's like a 20 minute wait. Oh, wow. I get, finally, I get my food uh, and I rush back. I'm like eating it outside. And then as soon as I finish, it's time to go to the next round. Hmm. You know, one thing I did not have in this tournament is much uh, recovery time between rounds, which has yeah. sometimes I feel hindered me. You know, it's tough yeah. to like when you play like a four or five hour game and then you got to, you know, you got time to take a few breaths and you got to go back in. Like, yeah, it can be tough. But, you know, I'm, I'm on four out of four. I'm the only person on four to four at this point. Mm. And so going into the final round there's a couple of people on three and a half kind of hot on my heels mm-hmm. um and i get paired against another experienced player about 2030 or so uh, i'm playing black this game so i'm thinking all right this guy is gonna be he's gonna be coming for me but again like i just got kind of lucky in the sense that he played into an opening that I just knew so much better. Like I was able to mm. basically catch him off already as, as early as move two or three. Oh, wow. He was forced into territory that he wasn't very comfortable with. And by move like nine or 10, he had probably already used up at least 30 minutes. And I probably had more time than I started with. <laughs> I was just, I was like, he would make a move and then I would respond and he would think for five, 10 minutes. And then I would answer and get up, walk around, you know, I'm like, yeah. okay, like the game hasn't even started for me yet. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and so at some, at, at, on move 10, he makes a move and actually offers me a draw. Ah, were you tempted to take it? You're like, I win the tournament. But the thing is, okay. I was thinking, first of all, if I take this draw, right, I'm going to be on four and a half, but there's people who are on three and a half. They could win. Oh, okay. So true. I could split first, you know, that's not bad. Yeah. But also like, you know, if this was a, if I found myself in some unfamiliar territory, if it was a difficult position, I would have seriously considered it. But, yeah. you know, I hadn't even like, I hadn't even broken a sweat yet. The position I knew for actually, the funny thing is the position that we reached by like move 12, I had on my board in preparation, like the week going into the tournament, I was looking at a very similar position and I knew it was already better for black. Mm. So I'm thinking like, okay, like I can take this and really push this for a win. So I said, okay, no, I want to keep playing. Nice. Um, and I get a really good position. I, I start to, you know, use a lot of time because I get to a moment where I know there's like so many different moves. I feel mm. like there's all these different paths I can take to try to push for a win. I'm not really sure what's best. Uh, and I felt like I got a good position, but at some moment, like, I'm not really sure. Like, should I go for this? Should I go for that? I'm trying to calculate. And, you know, the, the fatigue is starting to set in a little bit. I was a little bit disappointed when I looked back at the game, like a lot of the things that I missed were kind of miscalculated. Um, I had a decent advantage, almost let it slip on one point, but eventually 
he was also pretty tired. He was on the defensive all game and he made mm-hmm. the critical final mistake. Yeah. And uh, he basically had to resign in a position where he was just going to be down a piece. So yeah, that was a very uh, successful finish for me. You know, five out of five. It's one of those great challenges of humans defending, right? Like stockfish is like, I could defend this for eight hours straight. It'd be fine. A human after a while, we're just like, I can't defend anymore. It's this weird uh, mental phenomenon of cracking. Uh, yeah, I, at least I know I've faced it a lot. It's definitely difficult. You know, like he was doing a good job. He was like pretty, pretty resourceful with his defense. I was kind of like shuffling around. But like the thing is, my position was so good that I could afford to make a few like sort of nothing moves that I knew wouldn't worsen my position just to kind of see what he would do. And one mm-hmm. of those moves that I made kind of baited him into making a move that hurt his position. And I was able to then mm-hmm. capitalize on that. So yeah, he was in a difficult situation and like it wasn't getting easier for him, really. So it was just, again, like kind of fortunate that it just went into this territory that I was a lot more comfortable with than, than he was. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's one of the things I talked about in an earlier episode is my claim that at lower levels of chess, there's actually a lot more randomness than outsiders think. Like I think outsiders feel like everything's 100% equal. You have equal knowledge of everything. Um, but I feel like, especially with openings, like you can just have so much more preparation than someone in one particular line. And if they happen to play into it, you're just kind of like, really? All right. Or the reverse is true. You're like, yeah. how does this person know everything about this? And like, I just looked at it yesterday on Chessable. I mastered it. Uh, so what was this opening that you were able to get such an advantage out of if you're willing to spill the beans on, you know, at least one of your openings? I don't know. Maybe you're not. Yeah, I don't want to leak too much of my, of my preparation, but uh, nice. I will tell okay. you that I have a little bit of an unorthodox way of playing against D4. Mm, um, okay. I kind of learned it from, uh, you know, one of the, I have to give a shout out to the Chess Dojo. Mm. Um, I've been sort of like a part of their community for over a year now. I was on their uh, this big show that they had called Ultimate Sensei. Where we oh, you were on that? Yeah, it was a coaching show. Nice. Uh, my, my team actually ended up winning. That was great. Um, they're actually, they, they have season two coming up. It's been like almost a year since it started. Uh, nice. So yeah, actually the, one of the, the senseis there, one of their content creators, Grandmaster Jesse Cry, he put out this kind of video series. He called it like a, an end game repertoire. And it was basically mm. like, um, kind of the Philidor uh, slash like lion variation against uh, E4 with sort of D6, Knight F6. And against D4, you also play D6. And then hmm. when they play C4, you play E5. And you offer them this end game, which if they take it, white is pretty much has no advantage and is practically already worse. Wow. That's but if they don't take it, then they're, they're left with a few different options. And like it, it kind of throws off these traditional like d4 c4 players that are so used to playing d4 c4 second move and they're faced with this and this is exactly what happened to my opponent he was just sitting there like okay what do i do now like there's no move i can play here that will directly send me into my familiar territory i'm forced to just kind of adapt and uh this kind of um has been a a good weapon for me you know people can sort of sidestep it they can still play like knight of three on the second move and take it into some kind of a king's indian Mm mm-hmm but um, that's a very different game than like a queen's game. Yeah, it, it kind of it's also a good weapon against a lot of people who play non-traditional stuff against the king's Indian. Mm. Like if they're not familiar with having the knight on F three. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this was just uh, this was something that 
I got kind of fortunate with that he was one of these hmm. people that, you know, yeah, just didn't know how to handle into it. this territory. All right. So I got to ask you this question then, because this is the, the, the thing I've been facing as well is like, do you feel like this repertoire you've developed has a ceiling, right? Like I was trying to figure out, do I go for some sort of interesting tricksy stuff or if I'm just playing like the night or from the queen's gambit and like these, these openings that theoretically I could be 2,700 and still be playing. Cause you know, Max, I'll be there soon. Right? Like I'm, I'm 1650 now by, you know, by next summer, I'll probably be 2,700. Yeah. Uh, what was your thought with that? Do you, do you have any worries that there's a ceiling or are you just like, you know what? I enjoy it. I'm winning with it. I'm good with it. Uh, not really. I, yeah, I do enjoy it. And, you know, I, I've looked at master databases. It's not a very common opening, but it has been employed by a lot of very strong players. I think like basically the downside of it is, is that what, uh, what is supposed to happen based on traditional chess principles, like uh, how, how Andras, I believe, would say, is that white is supposed to play e4 on the second move. Mm -hmm. If white plays e4 and black does not prevent them from playing d4, then by all you know traditional logic, they should play d4. Or e4, rather. If they play d4, they should follow up with e4 yeah. if they can. But you know, because people have certain repertoires where they're used to doing certain things... They forget mm. about this. And then they feel like, oh, if I play E4, now I'm going into E4 territory. I don't know what to do against the Pierce defense or the Philidor. Yeah. And that's what, you know, stops a lot of players. But on the GM level, everyone can play everything, which is why yeah. when they're faced with this, mostly they will transpose into E4. And, you know, even when I play this online against, um, you know, titled players, a lot of them will just play E4 a second move because, you know, they know that that's kind of the most critical way to play. Yeah. But because I do play that against e4 anyway i'm comfortable with that as well so there's really no downside yeah. for me because it kind of meshes with my whole opening repertoire yeah that's a really cool idea that um i i really love this style of playing especially at i don't want to say under 2200 but i have no idea where the cutoff is if you're a d4 player and you're expecting a nice quiet slow developing d4 game I love the idea of being like, no, no, this is actually transposing into an E4 opening and it's going to be open and it's going to be wild. It's why like when someone plays the Sicilian, I've been really tempted to learn the close Sicilian just to mess with them and be like, you thought we were going to do a swashbuckling game? Nope, it's going to be boring. We're both going to be bored, but you're going to be worse off because you were hoping it was going to be exciting and I knew it was going to be boring. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. And I have like, Within even some openings, I have like a few different ways that I can play, like sometimes mm. to throw things off because there's so, some openings, like especially in the Sicilian, that are super theoretical. Yeah. And I just hate going into like a line where I know my opponent is booked up to like move 20 because yeah. I just have no practical advantage. Like they know everything. If I make one slip, I'm already worse and sometimes much worse. Like in a dragon, you can make one yeah. mistake, you're borderline losing already. Yeah. Uh, so I, I like to have certain kind of offbeat ways to play against certain lines and, and kind of be able to switch things up. Um, I even like, you know, over the past year, I was always an E4 player and I started playing the English a little bit because mm. first of all, I wanted to kind of work on more of my like slow building positional style uh, side of my game, which was a little bit lacking. Mm. Uh, but also like it gives me a way to uh, take someone out of their comfort zone, potentially, like if I know that they play if they're like, especially booked up on some response to E4, like, I don't know, the Sveshnikov or something where there's like a, a ridiculous amount of theory, I can take them into something that's less theoretical and something that maybe I have more experience uh, than them in. Gotcha. 
Fascinating stuff. Um, I'm so jealous that you got to play in the Ultimate Sensei. I uh, I tried to apply for this last one, and I can't. The answer was no, and I think it was something like maybe I was too highly rated. Maybe it was fourteen hundred to sixteen hundred or something, and I'm like sixteen fifty. But I know what's going to happen is the next one it'll be like sixteen fifty to eighteen hundred. They're going to be like, you're really not good enough to play in it. So <laughs> I'll never get to play in it. I'm very sad and very jealous that you got to play in it. So it seems yeah, like man. I don't know. They, I think they, they have ambitions to do it all across a lot of rating ranges. So who knows? Maybe, maybe you'll catch them at a time where. Yeah. The 1620 to 1680 range. And then I'll be yeah, there. They'll, they'll right. cater it. <laughs> <laughs> so you went five and oh, um, what are your thoughts coming out of it? Are you, are you feeling like I did it? I proved where I thought I was. Um, my hard work is showing off. Are you feeling like, oh, that was kind of, I feel like it was a flash in the pan, lucky moment. Like what, what, are, what are your thoughts around how you did and how you're evaluating that? So I'm definitely happy, uh, you know, with my overall performance and results. Uh, obviously I'm happy with my rating gain. I went from 1964 to 2039. So you know, a nice, nice 75 point jump. I'm finally over 2000, which has been my goal for, I don't know, two, three years now. Time to retire on top. Uh, well, I mean, we're on to the next now. Uh, oh, on to the next. That was not right. the ultimate goal, but it was a, a big stepping stone uh, along the way towards uh, my goal of uh, NM, which would be 2200. Okay. Of course, you know, my next goal is, is 2100 because, you know, I got to uh, take it one step at a time, understand that it's it's not, you know, easy. No one makes huge leaps, even though, you know, I made a big gain, but it was a result of, you know, a, a lot of work and kind of a hopefully I'm breaking through a plateau and I'm able to kind of like maintain my 2000 and work my way up. But at the same time, you know, as I mentioned, um, I'm not overly pleased with my play, like in the, especially a few games, I felt like I was not um, calculating super precisely. I was missing certain resources mm -hmm. that I had or my opponent had. Um, and, you know, I pride myself on being a pretty uh, good uh, with tactics and like decent calculation so when I miss certain things or I like don't see a way I can win, it's a little bit frustrating. And especially like mm. looking back at this, like, for example, last round game, it could have been a lot smoother. It could have been a nice victory if I had just like calculated a little bit deeper, a little bit more precise mm. It ended up being a little bit of a mess where just like my opponent kind of ends up making a sudden mistake and it's just over. So it, it does leave me with a sense that like I have a lot more to work on. Um, but, you know, the fact that I was able to play or, or do so well and, perhaps not play at my best maybe shows that I have more potential. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I'll let the others uh, judge themselves, but yeah, I think I'm happy with the result, but just motivated to, to move on. I'm already looking to see when my next tournament is going to be, you know, maybe later this month and uh, go from there. Question. When you say, you know, I missed a lot of stuff during the game. Did you feel like that in the moment or was it more like, you flipped on the engine and the engine was like, Oh, what are you doing? You missed all this stuff. So the funny thing is I haven't even really looked at it with engine, uh, at least in depth. Like uh, there's some moments where like, for example, in this game that I was playing the seven-year-old, there was this one like tactic, basically the sequence that relied upon the diagonal opening from G7 to a one, right. Cause I had a Bishop on G7 and mm -hmm. there was this sequence where uh, my pawn from E5 will, capture f4 and it opens a diagonal and there was this key sequence where if i had seen that it would have been really good 
I didn't realize this until much later. I was able to then use this concept later, but by that point, it wasn't as good. Right? Sure. So like, it's an example of like, I was able to like realize it, but not in time to, you know, use it to its full potential. And then in the final game, looking back, like I was just, uh, I haven't really looked at it with the engine. I was just plugging in my analysis into like my chest base. What I'll do is like, I'll, you know, after the game, I'm plugging in the variations I was calculating so that when I look back later and I go and annotate those games, I won't forget mm. what I was looking at. And as I'm plugging stuff in, I'm like realizing like, okay, like this is practically winning what I had been calculating. Just I, if I had seen it one or two moves further, or if I had mm. just considered this little move, like change, yeah. it would have been pretty much winning, but you know, it just hadn't you know, clicked with me or whatever uh, at the time. So yeah, that's, okay. that was, I think the most uh, irritating thing for me. Let me jump in real quick on the annotating. It sounds like you have a multi-step process. So can you lay out sort of what your process is for annotating? It sounds like you try to really soon after the game enter in the moves so that you can get your thought process and then you like more fully annotate it later. Does that sound right? Right. So I'm a big believer in like the kind of the Botvinix like method of like really annotating or analyzing, annotating your games. Like again, Jesse Cry, Grandmaster from the Dojo is a big like advocate of this. And I've been trying to do it like, since I've kind of come back to uh, serious chess since the pandemic, it started off with just rapid games. I would like play a game or two and I would annotate them, you know, and put in my thoughts. And what I've started to do with like tournament games is, yeah, I'll, well, first of all, what I do is sometimes when I write down my move on the score sheet, I'll also scribble my one or two other candidate moves that I was thinking at the mm. time. So I'll remember like what I had been also thinking and that'll, uh, lead me to then remember like the lines that I was actually calculating. I'll input those. I'll try to input those like soon after the game. So I don't forget. Uh, but because I'm a little bit lazy, I usually don't actually get to annotating those games until like a few days or maybe even a week later. But the goal is usually, you know, within the, the few weeks after the tournament to go through and hmm. analyze all the games, annotate, uh, basically put in my thoughts, what I was thinking during the moment and, more so even the moves kind of like document the overall experience. Like if there was some moment where like, mm -hmm. you know, my opponent made this move and he seemed like, you know, concerned or something, or like at this moment, yeah. you know, I, I got up and I had to walk around or something, you know, something to just capture the moment and like really allow me to remember what was going on at the time, I think is helpful. Yeah. I think it allows uh, and I think you like, to understand it more psychologically, especially if yeah, you, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because I think a error, lot of decisions, like, how do I make that error? And you're like, oh, we were going bam, bam, bam. And he had this look in my eyes and I was looking in his eyes. And you can sort of yeah. understand what happened. Yeah, because a lot of decisions you make are, are, are like psychological. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, I think understanding that underlying psychology can be important. And that's, you know, what's good about that, the annotation process. And also like being able to then go back, I don't know, a month, two months, a year later and seeing like, okay, this is what I was thinking at the time. And you can kind of judge like your own improvement. And you know, yeah. if I look at a game now that I annotated a year ago, I might look at it and be like, okay, I was thinking this, but like I was clearly, you know, misguided in my thoughts. Like mm -hmm. something was off here. Like, and I understand now why I ended up making this mistake. Whereas at the time I wasn't, you know, fully seeing it correctly. Yeah. Quick question about your annotation method during the game. I was not aware that you were allowed to take notes during the game. I thought you could only write down the move that you made. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I think I, I saw someone do that. This is where hmm. I picked it up. And I just, I've been doing this for a long time, actually, even back when I was like a teenager and I wanted to maybe like show my coach what I was thinking. Yeah. I would just scribble down like a move or two 
I don't think it's against the rules. It's not really notes. It's kind of just uh, sure. you know, one or two candidate moves. I mean, yeah, I'll look that up. <laughs> I don't I, know if, if like, I mean, I, I did have to turn in some of these score sheets because they were FIDE rated events. So if I get a call saying that, you know, <laughs> this was uh, this was illegal, then we might have an issue. But uh, I think it's allowed. You know, I, I try to be pretty descriptive. I also write down the time usage. Oh, okay. So I'll write down how much time I have left after every move. Yeah. And then like in chess space, there's a feature where you can plug in hmm. uh, how much time you spent on a move and be like, okay, like, yeah, this was, a, you know, this might've been a two minute move, but you know, the next move I spent 20 minutes here. Yeah. And so that obviously shows it was an important moment. And uh, yeah, this is a good idea. There. Yeah. So if uh, Max, if you get banned from all fee day events, my bad, um, I, I didn't, I didn't mean it. Yeah. Yeah. Secrets leaked. Uh, all right. Well, close. Um, you said sort of in your lead up that you've been really grinding hard, like the last 16, 17 months. And so I guess the question is, what does that mean for you? What is grinding hard? Like how many hours a day, how many hours a week? Uh, what are we talking about here? So, uh, since the pandemic, I'd say we're, well, really since I finished my fourth year of college. So I went to Rutgers university in New Brunswick. I was a nutritional sciences student and, uh, to back up a little bit, you know, I wasn't playing much chess, uh, at least seriously going into college. I kind of stopped playing competitive chess uh, in high school. I was just kind of like, you know, I reached a decent level. I was about 1770 when I was like 15 or 16. But uh, my kind of interest in serious chess was dwindling. I wasn't doing much studying. And so I played this like final tournament. I think it was uh, September 2014. And I decided, okay, I'm going to take a break from tournaments. I'm not really that serious about it right now. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I came to college and uh, joined the Rutgers Chess Club that it kind of reignited my interest because the first kind of meeting, I was playing against this this Russian dude. He was like 2100 USCF. He was like, I think, the strongest player there at the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I lost the game, but uh, I put up a good fight. And the Rutgers chess team captain was observing. And he was like, dude, are you sure you're only like 1800? I was like, yeah, I mean, I haven't really played in a while, but yeah, that's pretty much where I was at. And it was like, man, you should play. Like, I can tell you're, you're stronger than that. And so I was like, really, you think so? Like, okay, well maybe I'll consider it. But you know, at the time I was very busy. Like I couldn't even go to many club meetings because they conflicted with my calculus lectures. Mm. But the next semester, that's where I kind of started going to the club more. And finally I played uh, my first tournament uh, over the board in like two and a half years. And that was a quad tournament, a local club. I won that tournament, like barely any preparation. I went up from like 1770 to 1850 and I would keep playing every few months, just kind of show up casually. Uh, and I, you know, started gaining, gaining just off like playing blitz and watching some like YouTube videos, wasn't doing any serious training, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I eventually sort of plateaued at around or like, you know, went up to about 1940 came down a bit to the 1800s and then equalized at 1900 flat. What a great feeling, by the way, when you can just be like, I just play blitz and I get better and my rating. Just yeah, it was, up. it was very unexpected. You know, I just showed up. I was just like playing well. I was able yeah. to win. You know, the thing about like, okay, also what I have to say, like for people that aren't very familiar with uh, over the board tournaments and that whole experience, it is a lot harder to gain over the board than it is online. Because for the fundamental reason that over the board, you play a lot less and the number one factor, or really there's two key factors. That's your score. Like basically what, how many points you scored out of the games you played and your performance rating. And one of those 
or hopefully both have to be pretty high. Yeah. And uh, if they're not, then, you know, you might have a decent tournament, but you also might just not gain many points. You might gain, you know, like I was having decent tournaments at the Marshall and I was remaining the same because the average rating of my opponents wasn't high enough. Whereas online, yeah. if you just keep playing, you're going to gain, you know, you gain eight points from a win. You might lose the same from a loss, but if you play enough games and you win a decent amount of them, you're just going to gain yeah. uh, a good amount of points. Whereas over the board, it, it isn't always the same. And uh, one way that it kind of helps to gain is when you play in a quad tournament because you play three people that are all closely rated to you. Mm-hmm. And if you score two and a half out of three or three out of three, then your performance rating is super high because you basically won all your games. Yeah. So that's kind of what, what was the case. You know, I, I had a couple of tournaments where I scored like two and a half or, or three against people that were close to me. And that allowed me to gain, you know, a good mm-hmm. amount of points. Gotcha. Uh but yeah, eventually, you know, I, I stabilized around 1900 and then kind of the pandemic hit and uh, I was still mostly just playing a little bit of blitz, but uh, actually playing in some of these tournaments with the Rutgers chess team, like we would play in the amateur team East. It's this big team oh, tournament. Fun. Yeah. That, yeah. There's like four of them across the country every year. And uh the first time that I played with the Rutgers team was like my first time playing in this tournament in some years. And it was kind of like my first big return to the over the board world, you know, not just playing some small club event, but actually going mm-hmm. to a tournament with hundreds of people and seeing people that like I remembered from the chess world, but hadn't seen in years. That yeah. was what kind of like got me back thinking like, okay, like I can, I should probably come back to this world, you know, put in some work, try to get up there. Uh, but, you know, I was still in school, very hard to, to manage, you know, balance chess in school. But once, you know, the pandemic hit, things were online, like I slowly started to get back into chess. Like once my semester ended in May, I was like, all right, like I have a lot more free time now. I'm yeah. going to start working on it. And so I started playing some yeah. rapid games, experimenting with all kinds of openings, uh, you know, basically analyzing, trying to work on everything. And, you know, I started to see results. Uh, I was only about like 1850 or 1900 rapid on chess.com. Although at the time, uh, 10-0 was no, not considered rapid yet. It was still blitz. Mm. So rapid ratings were a lot lower. Uh, they later became much inflated. Like my rapid rating now was like many hundred points higher. It's not because I got like that much better, but it's because things are just running on a little bit different system now. Back mm. then it was only 1510. And mm. that was kind of my main source of training. I was playing uh, maybe like averaging five to seven of those games a week. And right. I would analyze, annotate them, try to take some stuff from them. Yeah. Uh, was that your main some... training or were you like reading books or watching videos or was it mainly just playing games and annotating? So that's a big part of it, but I was also, uh, and so playing those games, annotating, I was watching some videos, following some like broadcasts of these, like, you know, Magnus tour tournaments. Mm. Um, I was watching some videos, reading a little bit of books, uh, like secrets of modern chess strategies. I believe it's by John Watson. Uh, that mm-hmm. was a book that I was been reading a little bit here and there. Okay. Um, but to be honest, I haven't done a whole lot of reading uh, in a while. Like I'm just, I don't know. <laughs> Books are like not that much of a priority for me, to be honest. Like I feel like sure. I just get more from uh, playing and looking at my own games than I do from books. Like there can be a lot of useful exercises in those as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I do, I, I recently, or not recently, actually at the start of the year, I started uh, Sam Shanklin's Small Steps to Giant Improvement. It's mostly like a pawn book. That book and is I've so good. Maybe one or two chapters, but it's been really slow. 
it's been really uh, on hold for a while. Uh, so. Okay, I got a question for you. Are you trying to read it with a board or are you reading it on like the Forward Chess app? So I have the physical copy and I will usually, when I'm reading a book, I will have my board out and I'll be like playing through those games, trying to see what was going on. Um, only board, only books that I read without is like puzzle books. Like I have this other book, um, it's called Practical Chess Exercises. It's like 600 different um, positions. Some mm-hmm. are from games, some are just kind of composed and they're like very mixed themes. Like some are end games, some are uh, mm-hmm. strategic, some are tactical. And that's pretty good. Like those, I'll usually just kind of look at the, the position unless I'm really struggling, then I'll maybe set it up. Um, but even that's a book that I, I like, I've been going through it since like summer of 2020 and I haven't finished it yet because <laughs> okay. I'm just well, so quick, lazy with books. Quick plug for forward chess. Um, I found small steps to be a book I could read in bite-sized chunks. And for me, those bite-sized chunks come when I'm laying in bed before I go to sleep. And that is really hard to have a board on your lap. I suppose you could do it. Um, but the forward chess app, it's just so amazing that it lets you, there's a board on the app and the book. And then you just, you can just click next and it goes through the game for you. Now the peril of course, is that you might just go next, 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 and learn nothing. Uh, so you have to, you know, sort of pretend like it's a board, but it's just that convenience factor. I don't know, maybe that will help you, get through um books more or maybe just books aren't your thing and that's that's also totally that's fun. interesting yeah i don't know i mean it's just like i find that um i just feel like i get more from doing stuff that's more catered to me like my own mm-hmm. games because i know like the um, i'm looking at positions that uh have arisen through my own thought process and i will continue to see these positions as i play these openings and these structures whereas if i'm looking at some game and just in a book, like it may or may not be actually applicable. Like I remember looking at some games in like, you know, the secrets of modern chess strategy or an- another book that I was looking at for some time game changer mm. the, the book about alpha zero. And like yeah. there's these some games in there that are interesting, obviously they have cool concepts, but like, if, if you were to ask me what I actually took from those games, I couldn't tell you because I just <laughs> feel like they're not that applicable to like my actual chess journey, you know, like mm-hmm. they can be useful to look at, but uh, I like to look at like, one thing I really need to do that I'm planning to do over the next few months is analyze more master games, especially in some openings that I play, because like in this tournament, I would find myself at certain points where I'm, I like this position that I have in front of me and uh, you know, my prep has led me here, but then I get to this point in the middle game where I'm not exactly sure what I'm trying to do here. And I feel like having that kind of uh, master games to, to look at, will sort of help like bridge that divide between having a good position, but not quite being sure what to do with it. Yeah. You sound like you should be Jesse Cry's student. I think you would be his prized dream student, the student that actually does what he says and just primarily looks at their games. Yeah. In a way I have been his student, like unofficially, um, you know, the dojo had like some, some game review shows and stuff. I would always submit my games because I really value his opinions on a lot of things, uh, like, you know, he can, he's just a, a fun guy to listen to. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think like, uh, a lot of my thoughts about the game are more aligned, even though he's like kind of a more of a solid positional player. He's like, you know, he, a lot of times you'll look at people who have like a crazy style, kind of like me or like, you know, like relax here. Like, what are you doing? But, uh, <laughs> yeah, the overall kind of, uh, approach, I guess is, uh, is aligned. Makes sense. So you're not using that many books. Sounds like you're using some videos. 
are you using any tools like I don't know, a tactics program or chessable or anything like that? Um, as far as tactics, uh, I use a little bit of like the chess.com trainer and maybe leech just a little bit. Although, um, sometimes the puzzles you get on these like, uh, apps or like sites like chess.com, I feel like sometimes they're very good and they're very like interesting. You can tell they're from a game, but sometimes they just look like either they were composed in some crazy engine lab or they just look like someone's drunk, like bullet games. Like they just make no sense. Like it's just some completely impractical puzzle. The king is out in the center of the board and you're just like, what? Like I will never yeah. see this in a serious game. So yeah. for me, I actually, what I like to do is when I analyze my games, you know, naturally there's always tactics missed. And so uh, I'll try to find those tactics that might've been missed. Like I might just have, you know, when I analyze a blitz game, especially Obviously, I'm not going to, you know, go super in depth, but what I'll do is I'll kind of have that engine bar, which will show, you know, potential yeah. swings in, in analysis, in uh, evaluation. Right. And if I see like, okay, it's, it's equal, maybe, you know, slide edge for white and then suddenly it jumps, then I see, okay, there's a tactic here. And yeah, maybe I missed that tactic. And so I'll sit there and I'll try to calculate and figure it out. Mm -hmm. And then I will save that position. And I have Ooh. like a database saved to basically maybe like a hundred positions for my blitz games and nice. you know, 50 for my rapid games. And at some points I'll maybe go take like a random number generator and I'll just kind of quiz myself on those positions. Hmm. Like if I were to see it now, six months later, yeah. can I find the solution in like a more efficient manner than I was back then? You know, what actually sounds like the perfect scenario there is put those positions in chessable and then you can just tell it how often to quiz you on it. That's interesting. Yeah. Chessable uh, I've mainly used. So I used it a little bit to start playing my main opening against e4 uh, there was a course which uh you know i looked at for a time but then i i realized that with certain lines like the suggestions that the author gives are sometimes not fully applicable maybe to your level mm -hmm. or kind of to the way you really want to play things so i've made certain adjustments and i've kind of designed my own file around it uh, yeah. but what i have been doing recently um uh well first of all i kind of I got chess base, first of all, which I never had like for, you know, many years that I was a tournament player and I designed a lot of like um, my opening files. I actually have stuff down. So I'm not just trying to remember a gazillion lines in my head at all times. Yeah. Uh, but then once I did that, I took it a step further and I made like custom courses in chessable where I'll take like, nice. you know, my, my repertoire against E4 well, with E4 and I'll plug that in and I'll put in maybe not every line, but like some of the more critical lines or more forcing lines that you might <clears throat> struggle to remember you know, if you don't, you know, use that move repetition uh, software to quiz yourself on. And, you know, I've been using that from time to time to kind of quiz. I'm not one of these people that like is on like a 200 day streak or anything. You know, I, I don't really do it like super consistently, but mm -hmm. I will use it from time to time just to make sure I'm remembering things and you know always prepared. Because the thing about chess, as you mentioned earlier, you never know like what your opponent will throw at you. You might be playing some mainline opening or someone will try out some some rare line that you only see once in a blue moon, but when you do, you have to be prepared for it. So it is useful to, to do that review. Yeah. It sounds like we use chessable in a really similar way. I, I found the same problem that like when I buy courses, I find that there's lines in there that I really like. And there's other lines that I don't like, and it doesn't mean they're bad lines. It's just for, it doesn't suit me. And I end up Frankensteining a bunch of different stuff. And I just kind of, build my own course. So it's funny if you go on chessable, you'll probably see like 
huh, he's not really far into any course, but I have my own <laughs> secret courses that I am, you know, far into. And I got to say, I had like a really long streak and it was very freeing when I lost it. Like it was traumatizing when I lost it, but I was like, all right, you know what? I can just use it now when I feel like using it instead of being feeling like some pressure that I had put on myself. But I'm back up to 60 days now. And like yesterday, I was like, oh my goodness, I almost lost my streak. So I, I had to hop on just, just to get my streak. Yeah, I, I can understand that. You know, it definitely like you know, it keeps you disciplined to, to review that kind of stuff. But yeah, definitely like in, in some courses, there are lines that just become, you know, either they're very long or they're kind of impractical. Like I, I recently, I got the short and sweet for Gawain Jones's King's Indian course. Hmm. And like every line is over 20 moves. And I'm just looking at it like, okay, you could give <laughs> yeah. me the first 12 moves. And yeah. then I'll figure out what to do with it. But yeah. like, if you're trying to get me to, to look at these like 25 move lines, like it's just, it's so impractical mm-hmm. and just not a productive use of time, like to try to memorize that stuff. So, yeah, I, I actually know, you got kind of uh, Geary's yeah. lifetime Nidor, of course, which is very similar because like GMs use it, right? <laughs> I to look at these lines. Yeah. Like, I am not a GM. This, this may be over my head. That's the thing, like, I mean, it's it's hard probably for the authors to make a course that's suitable to, you know, like a tremendous spectrum yeah. of rating ranges. Like, you know, they're not going to try to make like five different courses. You know, this one's for 1,200 yeah. players, this one's for 2,000 players, this one's for GMs. So you kind of got to like do your own work to maybe, you know, adjust it to your own repertoire. Yeah, I, I think for me, that's my big takeaway as well is that. It, it doesn't, at least for me, it's not simply download and plow through. It's it's download and then think, which yeah. which I think is good. It just even on its own to be thinking about your repertoire, building your repertoire, not just playing through something someone else has said. So I will say when that person is 2,700 and I'm 1,600, maybe I should just be listening to them and just playing everything they want me to play. Maybe that would be better. I don't know. Yeah, but the thing is also like, what they understand to be best, like your opponents aren't going to understand to be best, you know, like your opponents are probably not going to find that most critical move on like move 10. They're just going to play something that they think is good. And the fact that you memorize 10 additional moves is going to mean nothing. So yeah, that's what I found, you know, especially looking at a lot of lines from chessable. So for like, one thing for me is like, I, I, my repertoire is fairly wide, but it's not very deep. Like I don't try to memorize very many deep lines there are a few forcing lines or like maybe sacrifice I have to be prepared for, mm. especially when you're playing black, like, you know, people might throw very aggressive stuff at you and you, you have to know maybe move like 15 or 16. But as a general rule of thumb, I don't try to memorize past like move eight or 10, because I feel like by that point, you know, you kind of are, you, you know what the middle game looks like that you're getting into, but um, yeah. you know, there's like a million different options. So what's the sense in memorizing, you know, long lines past that point. Makes sense. I'm, I'm going to ask you a selfish question now. I have thought about buying chess base at least 8,000 times. So why did you finally break down and buy it? And do you feel like there's some magical rating number where you're like, once you hit this, you should probably have it? Yeah, I don't know. Um, well, first of all, it was a gift to me, uh, you know, Ooh. a holiday gift, luckily. Great um, idea, actually. Yeah. Uh, got but, a birthday coming up. If you listen to this family, you got an idea yeah, now. Get, get the man here that's his chest base. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I've heard the number like 1800 thrown around. Like maybe that's the writing range where like it starts to get a little more serious. 
um, you know, obviously I, I got it when I was 1900, but I, I think it's, I've heard some people say like, it's not very user-friendly. I sort of experienced that a little bit, um, but I think it is generally a pretty good tool. Uh, especially if you have like a big database, like the package that I got, there's like also this database that you download that has like 6 million games or something. And so, you know, you can look at and update it periodically and kind of see like, okay, what are people playing? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times when you're designing like a repertoire, it's not necessarily about the top engine moves. It's what works on like a master level. And even that's not always like, you know, super engine, uh, I guess, um, verified, but like, if I had a choice between going with what the engine says is like plus, you know, 0.5 or what's plus 0.3, but has a 60% win rate, uh, yeah. within a thousand games in the master database, you know, I, I know what I'm choosing. So, yeah. you know, I try to only really look at the engine, like when it's totally like uncharted territory, but it's good to kind of have like a, a master database and, and see like what is proven to basically work and, you know, what might not. Yeah. So, you know, it is a good tool for that. It's a good tool for, for having a repertoire, but I think there are, there is free stuff out there. Like, you know, a lot, a lot of people um, suggest Leachess studies. Yeah. That's what I've been using. I, I have a lot of studies, of, but I've heard is good. So yeah. I have I so get... many studies now is the one problem. It's like at, at my repertoire is spanning 10 different studies and I'm starting to be like, you know, maybe I just need one chess based file that has all of this in it. I'm yeah, also a little program. worried something will happen and I'll like lose all my Lee chess stuff, but that's, that's probably an unreasonable worry, but um, any coaches along the way. So um, when I started out uh, going to like chess school, um, I wouldn't say I had a coach. I had like, you know, there was like lectures and, and people that kind of you know guide you along the way. The one private coach I had, uh, I worked with between, I believe, ages 10 and 15. Um, mm. So I got him when I was probably around 12 or 1300. Stopped working with him around the time that I got out of serious chess when I was close to 1800. He was a, an international master from Ukraine. Uh, mm. His biggest success, I guess, he coached a former woman's world champion, uh, Anna Ushanina. Wow. Yeah, Ukrainian. She, I, I think he coached her kind of earlier on in her career, but she did, did mm. become women's world champion at one point. Uh, and he's worked with a lot of, you know, promising players and it was good for a time. Like, you know, he gave me some good opening advice, you know, helped my tactics and stuff. But I think like, I don't know, it wasn't that interactive. I found it, it sort of at some moments became a little boring. Like you would give me these, these hard tactical problems. And I'd just be staring at them. Like, I don't really know what to do here. You know, like <laughs> He's like not really helping me because, you know, he's getting paid to be there anyway. Um, you know, I, I'm was privileged, you know, to have like, my dad pay for those lessons. So it wasn't like coming out of my own pocket. So the downside of that is like, I might not care as much as if I was actually paying for those lessons. Yeah. So it was just like a period of decline where I started to take less and less from those and it became more and more a burden. Mm -hmm. That's when I eventually decided like I, I should stop taking these because I'm not really getting much, I'm not getting much out of it. Um, but for a time it was definitely useful. You know, we would go over some of my games uh, you know, he would give me some cool puzzles, which I still have like some files. Actually, it was interesting. <clears throat> uh, like a year ago, I was like looking through and I found like some of the old stuff he was sending me. And like, I feel like now it's actually like good back then. It was like way over my head. Some of these, he was giving me these like 
puzzles from grandmaster games that like i'm looking at now it's taking me 10 minutes to solve like it was just it would have been unrealistic for me to solve it back then when i was like 1600 um, but you know fortunately i have that some database of puzzles that i have to use mm-hmm. um but yeah have i think thought, coach is, is have you thought at all about returning to a coach now that you know you are an adult improver are you kind of wait are you kind of going like hey i don't i don't need one right now like i'm clearly having some success things seem to be working i'm going to keep going in on my own until i hit that brick wall and then then maybe i start looking at a coach yeah that's kind of what my thinking is uh i feel pretty comfortable working on my own and like i'm, I'm pretty self-driven i feel like uh mm-hmm. maybe like when when i get to 2200 or close and i decide I'm, i want to make that next push you know maybe try to go for fm or something like that you know if that ever time ever comes and i might look into a coach but uh, right now I'm pretty happy working on my own. I actually, I'm a coach myself. You know, I work with a lot of hmm. mostly kids and actually it's interesting, like having that experience of working with a coach in the past, um, makes me kind of see things in a perspective now. Like when I have a student who I can tell, like maybe their focus is not really there. I know like I have yeah. to be more interactive kind of like, because my coach, he wasn't as much doing that. And maybe like, that's why I kind of lost my interest. So Mm-hmm. I can sort of relate to some kids when like, you know, I give them a puzzle and I can tell maybe it's over their head. Like, okay, I say, okay, like maybe this isn't the right fit and I need to kind of adjust, you know, what I'm, what materials I'm giving for them. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, that's really interesting. Um, before we head out, just real quick, how many hours a day and week do you feel like you're doing right now? Man, it's hard to say because like, uh, as like a chess addict, you don't really track, you know, the hours that you put in, you just kind of like, you know, whenever, whenever you have time, you do some hours here, you do some hours there, it adds yeah. up. Um, you know, I think like during the summer, especially like I was maybe easily putting in six hours at least a day. Mm-hmm. Now it's probably a bit less, but you know, like an hour here, an hour there, I still probably put in like three, four hours a day. You know, again, like I'm privileged that, I'm a chess coach. So, you know, I coach some kids, I work at some schools, but I have a decent amount of time during the day. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's kind of part of my, you know, part of my purpose is to try to make it now because that kind of uh, improves me as a coach and allows me to kind of, you know, do more in that, in that sphere. So I am putting in a decent amount of time, which is why, you know, I expect to see progress and I expect to see good performances and, uh, I'm frustrated when that doesn't happen, but you know, of course it, it's never smooth, uh, never smooth road. And actually, you know, I wanted before, before I forget you, we talk about, you know, successes, we talk about despairs. There was a moment of a little bit of despair that I, I would be remiss if I don't share, like my first tournament at the Marshall, uh, this was back in July. I just signed up right for this, this big, uh, under 2400, uh, 90 plus 35 round event. I take a train into the city. It's the first round. And I see that I'm paired against this guy. His rating is 980 USCF. Right. Oh. So my, I, my was 1998 at the time. So uh, I outrate my opponent by over a thousand points USCF. Uh, <laughs> you know, I understand like there's a lot of underrated people, especially in this day and age. There's people that, yeah. you know, play online and haven't played much over the board. And so they're obviously going to be underrated. Um, but, you know, I go into this game and uh, I get a pretty good position, uh, but I was spending a lot of time for whatever reason. I was just like, you know, again, I like to use my time when I'm playing classical chess. I don't like to, you know, rush into mm-hmm. the decisions, but I was just using way too much time for not any particular reason. 
And uh, I was up a pawn. I had a good position, but I was getting low on the clock. My opponent was doing a good job of like keeping the queens on the board, keeping some the game going. And at one moment, I I thought I could win another pawn. I, I take with my bishop. He takes back with his knight. I take with my rook. But my rook was the last piece defending my back rank. And he gives this check, which I hadn't anticipated. Oh. Forces my king to the corner. Comes into this queen. And I'm just down, dumbfounded because I realized that the only way I prevent checkmate is to sacrifice my rook. Oh. And so the tables are completely turned on me out of nowhere. I'm just stunned. I'm losing a rook. And, you know, I played on for a little bit, but I end up losing the game against someone that I outrated by a thousand points. And that like walk back to the train and that like night was, yeah, that was one of the most uh, miserable experiences I've had in a, in a while. I was like, just so stunned. Like, how could this happen? Like I've been doing so well and here I go, I get knocked off by, you know, someone that's so, so much lower rate, you know, to be fair, he is much stronger than his rating suggests mm-hmm. uh, in the past few months. He's, he's climbed to like maybe 1600, you know, from like, yeah. you know, a thousand that he was in just, a few months so obviously he's very underrated but still you know i had yeah. a there was no reason why i should have lost that game and you know just kind of being inattentive and, and stuff like that cost me goes to show like you always got to be alert uh in, in every situation but yeah that was yeah. that was definitely a big moment of despair and uh Yikes. sometimes you have to have those moments you know before you get before you have those successes to put things into perspective yeah that's a good point before we go, since we were talking about the amateur team tournament, I want to I want to tell the listeners my amateur team West story. So I was actually on a team that won. I think it was the under eighteen hundred section, and uh, I was on a team with like three two thousands, and I was the sacrificial lamb. They purposely <laughs> recruited me because I was the only person in the club who was at like eleven hundred at the time, and I was underrated, but I wasn't like good. Um, and I got slaughtered every single round and got this like clock trophy at the end for getting slaughtered every round. It was just <laughs> one of those, the most hollow victory I've ever had in my life. I come home and my fam's like, you got a trophy. Did you win every game? I'm like, nope. Lost every single game. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. That kind of reminds me of the story, like the amateur East, they actually ended up changing the rules at some point to put in a rating cap because there was a team with three grandmasters and one little kid that they just, I don't know where they even found him. They just put out a notice like, yo, we're looking for one extra person. Yeah. And it was just some little kid that was like, I don't know. He had a very minuscule rating or was even unrated. And yeah. obviously they're all like, you know, 26, 2700 USCF. And, you know, they kill everyone. And he won one game by forfeit and lost all of his other games. And they won the tournament. You know, they won six and oh, because, you know, yep. if you have three wins, it doesn't matter that you lose a game. Yeah, exactly. And then the, you know, they put in a rating cap after that, that uh, first of all, your average rating of the team has to be <laughs> under 2,200. And second of all, you can't have more than like a thousand point difference between, I think, the first and the last board or something like that to kind of yeah. mitigate that. So, yeah. And, and we we had to deal with all those rules, you know, but but uh, that's why we we're playing the under 1,800. But it was fun times, I guess. But every round they would just. They'd be like, how'd you do? And they'd start laughing because they're like, they, we don't they, we don't care how you did. Actually, we all we all won in every every round. I wow. So they, they just brought you in just for the per, just for filling the spot. Just yep. they didn't really care. Wow. Just the, I was at the low rated spot filler. And who knows? Maybe he'll get lucky and win a game. And I did not. But mm. it was it was an interesting uh, event. Well, Max, thanks so much for coming and sharing your um, 
great success story with us, uh, your methods of how you got there. And uh, I hope to see you keep climbing before you hit that wall that you will almost certainly inevitably hit. It's, it's very it's inevitable, doubtful. right? You'll have a smooth sail to like 3,300. That just seems really doubtful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's always plateaus. It's, uh, it's unexpected when you hit there. But hey, thanks for having me on again. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I, I have listened to a majority, I think, of your podcasts and uh, I've really enjoyed them. So I'm happy to be the latest guest. Appreciate it, Max. And where can people find you online? Is there anything you want to plug? Uh, go, go for it. So people can find me. My Twitter is uh, at chess gains, one word, uh, chess, and then gains, G-A-I-N-Z. And I also have a YouTube channel, which you can also find through my Twitter that I haven't been as active uh, uh, recently, but because I have had this tournament win, I'm obviously going to have to make a video and, and maybe break down some of my games. So yeah, for sure. Look forward to seeing that. Um, okay. And, you know, I'm going to try to be a little bit more consistent with, with my content, but it's a, it's a work in progress. So, all right. I got a question for you. If you stop gaining and you hit a really long plateau, will you change your Twitter handle to chess plateaus? That's funny. I actually, I, I tweeted that one time with a hashtag after my latest oh. commercial tournament where <clears throat> okay. my rating went from 1964 to 1964. Mm. And I was like, yeah. This is what a nice performance at the Marshall will get you. Chess plateaus. Oh, all right. Well, we yeah, hopefully, hopefully that doesn't happen. Uh, Chess gains all the way. We got your back. Um, so uh, again, there's a new Patreon page for the show. If you want to check out Patreon Chess Journeys. Uh, and again, thanks to uh, Terry King. Much appreciated. And uh, everyone else out there, have a great week. I hope your journey is a fruitful one. I wish you immense gains. Uh, if they don't come, enjoy the journey. They'll come soon. Don't worry. Or they won't. But hopefully they will. All right. I'll see you all next time.